Hey, it's Jennifer from Matters of Engagement. This is our third and final episode in our mini-series produced with Sporecast and Pep Talks. This episode is produced by Pep Talks and is called Creating Spaces for Storytellers. And now I'll hand it over to Paul and Sandra. How can stories be used to advance health research and health care? How do storytelling approaches help patients and communities share their experiences? Listen in on part three of a collaborative three-part podcast series about engaging in storytelling. This is Pep Talks, the patient engagement podcast. This episode is the last in a special three-part series called Engaging in Storytelling, a three-part collaborative podcast series with Sporecast, Matters of Engagement, and Pep Talks. Each of these podcasts covers a different angle on patient stories and storytelling, painting a picture of the challenges and opportunities encountered when engaging in storytelling, and we're sharing all three episodes on all three of the podcast's platforms. In part three, this very episode, Amy Hill from the Story Center US talks a little about the history, methodology, and impact of storytelling, and provides some examples of digital storytelling in the context of public health and health research. Sandra Zielinski and I first asked Amy to tell us how she came to the world of digital storytelling. So I actually come into the world of digital storytelling from the world of public health, as it happens. And so my first kind of official job um, after college was at Planned Parenthood. And then my first official job after getting a master's in gender studies was for a local county public health department. And I was doing a lot of work around addressing um, gender-based violence and youth violence. And I kind of stumbled across um, digital storytelling as a, as a great methodology for engaging community members in talking about those kinds of really sensitive issues. And then it, it just sort of went on from there. Can you remember what like first struck you like, as like digital storytelling was a, a big thing for you? Yeah, so I was actually, um, I was working for the California Department of Health Services on a small uh, capacity building project where the, the, the whole focus was on building the capacity of domestic violence, shelter agencies and prevention programs to use new and emerging technologies. And this was way back in 1999, sort of the first wave of the web and all of that, but well before, you know, social media and any of this and YouTube. And, um, and I was always doing research on interesting ways to engage these, you know, relatively small nonprofit-y grassroots organizations in um, trying to be interested in technology. And I came across digital storytelling and I just thought, wow, what a great way to but, you know, combine uh, a focus on people sharing real stories from their own lives with learning to use new digital technologies. And, um, and it just kind of, it really struck a chord for me because I actually come from a family where there was a fair amount of disruption and violence. And so, um, you know, my first exposure kind of led me to let me see what this would be like to tell a story from my life. And so I participated in a workshop and it was, it was such a powerful experience that I just thought this would be a great way to engage advocates and uh, work directly with survivors to really bring their voices forward. And this was all in a public health context. So it was, you know, the, the projects were funded by the 
um, California Department of Public Health. So Amy, you mentioned um, right at the beginning something around a methodology with digital storytelling. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and perhaps the importance of the methodology that you use um, when engaging people in storytelling? Sure. So Story Center has been around since the early 1990s, believe it or not. And, um, you know, kind of the quick origin story is that the organization used to be a community-based theater. And in the early 1990s, our uh, still director, Joe Lambert, produced a show called Next Exit uh, with this guy, Dana Ashley, who would get up on the stage in a live theatrical performance and tell short anecdotal stories from his own life. And then he would have projected behind him um, still photos and like old Super 8 video footage. So he would sort of perform this live version of what we now know as a digital story. And after the success of that show, Joe and Daniel were invited to Los Angeles by the, it was the Los Angeles Film Institute to experiment with kind of a workshop format actually with documentary filmmakers. And so they, they sort of invented this, they sort of invented this group process workshop that brings small groups of people together to over the course of several days to share uh, intimate personal stories from their own lives and then develop and craft them as short videos. And so um, that was such a successful event that that Joe immediately came home and shortly thereafter shut down the theater and sort of morphed it into the San Francisco uh, Center for Digital Media, which then became the Center for Digital Storytelling, which then became Story Center. So it's had a couple of iterations, but throughout this particular workshop methodology has really been kind of one of our core, um, core offerings that we do. And, you know, you could describe it as a form of um, participatory media. Um, it's, as I said, you know, it's a, it's an a, a intensive workshop process where a small group of people come together and share their own stories and then are supported by facilitators. And kind of the heart of the workshop, we, we might say, is, is the story circle process, which of course owes, owes a debt of gratitude to indigenous communities around the world that of course have used storytelling since before even time was recorded as a way to kind of transmit knowledge and information, build relationships, et cetera. But in the, in the digital storytelling context or, um, or approach, it's essentially a time when each story, storyteller in the workshop gets to verbally share their story and then receive comments and feedback from the group. And that's always a really wonderful way of building connections and relationships among the group and helping the storytellers really get clear on what story it is they want to share and uh, what meaning or insight they're taking from sharing the story. In regards to that, so thinking about sort of that that story circle or people, you know, I think we've all shared stories. We all have so many stories to share, but when we look at asking people to share their stories for, you know, like if we're talking about in health research or within a healthcare context, what would be the difference of inviting somebody to share a story sort of in a, in a live format or a written format um, versus a, 
a digital storytelling and how would how can we choose or or even learn from sort of some of that digital storytelling methodology? Yeah, I mean, I think in a in the context of health research, digital storytelling is most closely analogous, for instance, to a focus group session where essentially you're doing kind of a group interview process with people and bringing them together. But the distinction really is that um, while a focus group is pretty explicitly a qualitative research methodology, you know, if it's being used in that way, digital storytelling is really a, a creative arts and reflective practice. So it can be framed as a form of qualitative research within a health context, but it has all of these, um, you know, other added components in terms of skill building, in terms of um, really supporting people and kind of digging deep and reflecting into their lives um, and, um, and helping them develop skills for telling stories, both verbally and written using video to, um, to develop their stories and so on. Um, in terms of, you know, the distinction between, it's, it's a good question to, to think about, you know, what makes it, what, 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 what are some of the differences between, uh, for instance, learning how to tell a story um, sort of impromptu, just orally, you know, more like, a, 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 um, more like the moth or something like that, where you just get up and speak your story and sort of perform it versus, you know, what are the skills required to write your story down, which is a whole separate set of, uh, of, of things that you need to pay attention to, um, versus, for instance, being interviewed. You know, those are all really different ways and uh, formats for telling stories. And in our basic methodology, we, we, we sort of combine this idea of um, uh, more like an oral history type of experience where, you know, somebody speaks their story together with then uh, learning how to craft it as a piece of writing. But of course, in contexts where there may be literacy issues or where we're working with multiple languages, then of course we adapt and, and modify um, the approach to, to, you know, to help people be able to, to develop a story, even if they don't feel comfortable or if we can't really support them as a writer. Yeah, I mean, it, this all does make me think about some of the things we've been thinking about as a team, which is this, the idea of um, ethical considerations and just sort of making sure that we're um, engaging in, in ethical practice, both as both as a team and, and sort of inspiring, hopefully, others to, to do the same in their projects. So, so are there any ethical considerations that you've uh, sort of weaved your way through uh, when supporting people creating a digital story of their own? Yeah, sure. So um, we actually have a whole set of ethics guidelines that underpin all of our work at Story Center. And, um, and I think um, probably the most significant of those is the very first one which really addresses the need to um, support and enhance storyteller well-being. So um, to, whatever, to whatever extent that's um, possible and you know, um, given lots of different variables of how that can be set up and, and supported, that's always kind of first and foremost in our minds. You know, there's always a delicate dance between wanting to to wanting to create a, a rewarding and meaningful experience for a group of people, and then um, wanting to develop really compelling stories. And 
you know, so what, one thing that differentiates our work from more traditional media making practices is that focus on um, enhancing and protecting story storyteller well-being. And, you know, the whole set of ethics guidelines really came out of some work that I was doing more than 10 years ago down in South Africa. And I had some experiences where, um, you know, through no fault of my partner organizations, you know, just given how, um, how quickly YouTube was taking off and how, how um, much there was sort of a culture in the NGO and development sector of, um, of, you know, sort of collecting stories, narratives, images, and splashing them about. And, um, and I really felt concerned with the ways that um, some of some of the organizations were representing people without necessarily um, even going through a, a proper permissions kind of uh, process. Um, and not really thinking through what it meant to, um, you know, to just put their stories all over the place. And so, um, so we actually partnered with Photo Voice UK and um, got permission to adapt some of their very good ethics guidelines to create a whole specific set of guidelines for, for digital storytelling and other participatory media practitioners. So that's a really great resource that people can find on our website. Yeah, we also have sometimes researchers that ask us um, similar questions around the ethics, but more so not necessarily coming from that those ethical considerations of how to support people, but even through sort of how do we apply for ethics and and ultimately like who does this story belong to? And so to your point, you know, with YouTube out there and um, and we all know, you know, People can post all kinds of comments, some of them not nice on YouTube. What happens if at any point um, a storyteller doesn't want their story out there anymore? So who, who, who do the stories belong to and, and how do we navigate some of those um, bits and pieces if, if a storyteller either chooses to not share their story at, at the end of a, a workshop or creating their own digital story? Um, or, you know, if, if it's two years or five years down the road and they, their lives change and they say, I don't, I don't want that out there anymore. Can you remove it, please? What is our responsibility around that? Sure. I think the way that I've always approached it in my public health practice is to just be really clear and transparent from the outset um, about any and all plans, agendas, goals, hopes, dreams for how, where, why, and when stories will be shared publicly. So, um, so for instance, with some of the partners that we work with in health-related projects, the, the focus of a project is, is um, pretty solely on really creating a positive experience for the storytellers. And there's really no agenda for, for stories being shared publicly um, sort of beyond the immediate group within the workshop and the storytellers themselves. So that in that instance, the whole process is, is really much more of a kind of creative arts therapy experience, which can be really beautiful. Um, however, Many um, funders and researchers are interested in, um, you know, supporting supporting people in developing work that can be shared. So, you know, where where and 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 when that's the case, then I just think it's important to be really clear that that you know that there is a hope for that 
from the beginning, from the very first moments of when you start talking with potential storytellers and developing proposals and all of that. And um, in those instances, um, I've really found that in our, in our public health work, one of the most effective approaches can be to engage storytellers kind of from the perspective of not from this idea of, oh, come and share your, you know, deepest, most private personal story, and then we're going to splash it around for the whole world. No, actually, how, how, um, how I approach it is, um, please um, work with us in this storytelling process so that we can support you in creating a video that you feel really proud of that can speak directly to others in your community. Um, about these particular issues. So really more engaging people as sort of partners and collaborators in the creation of a story um, that can be useful in a, in a particular kind of way. You know, obviously in terms of health literacy, health education, health advocacy like that. And in that way, you're really, um, you know, offering them a lot of um, um, agency and viewing it as a, as a solidarity and collaborative experience rather than, than sort of um, extracting stories from a, a particular community. Um, to the point about um, removing things from, well, first of all, so when it comes to story release, one of our ethics guidelines um, has to do with the viewing the release process as a process. You know, so we like to talk about a living consent process. Um, and as, as I've said, you know, kind of weaving discussions about what it will mean for people to say or share certain uh, pieces of information, certain images in their stories so that you're, you're, you're being responsible as a facilitator in um, providing them with the support and guidance and good advice about what they're going to feel comfortable and safe sharing and showing. And then when it comes time for the release, we often do release forms that actually allow people to tick off specific boxes that indicate um, different ways that they're open for their stories to be shared. So everything from, yes, you can share my story in a, um, in a, in a, a public community setting, um, but no, I would prefer that you not put it on YouTube. So, so things like that. And then, and then when people do give permission for their stories to be shared, for instance, online, it's really important that they, um, that they understand the limitations of uh, subsequently removing it um, if they do wish to remove it. So of course, if they do wish to remove it, then, then that needs to be honored and it needs to be taken down right away. Um, but it's important to also explain that that, that doesn't 100% guarantee that no one out there might still have a copy just because of the, the nature of the, um, the virtual world and the fact that people can um, download things and copy them uh, relatively easily. So just making clear the, what those limitations are. But we, we have had situations where, for instance, we do quite a bit of work with current and former foster youth. So young people growing up in, in care situations outside of their um, biological families. And we have had situations where, you know, young people who told stories maybe at age 18 or 20 are now, you know, well into their professional careers and they've really grown and changed a lot and they um, they've written to us and said, and said, you know, could, could, could we please take my story down now because I feel like I'm at a different phase of life and um, I'd rather not have that out there. And so, of course, then we have to just respect that. And I think that's a really natural progression of, um, uh, you know, just this idea of 
you know, not sort of commodifying stories and um, assuming that this story is like this static permanent representation of a person and just remembering that all storytellers are humans with lots of um, different lived experiences, stories, experiences, histories, etc. Mm-hmm. I like I like that. I like how you um, frame to the idea around bringing people's partners to storytelling as I think it kind of talks a little bit to the methodology used where people really spend time in sort of a reflective of stage. So yes, we all have, have stories, but we haven't all had a chance to really share and sort of reflect and figure out that the nugget or the insight, like you said, or emotion around that story. So it gives that person the opportunity to think of like, what's that call to action? What is it that I want to share with the public space? What do I want people to learn from you know, my experience. And so it takes some sort of digging in to figure those things out from an individual perspective, as opposed to just sharing, you know, a very personal story and kind of putting it out there and then having other people think about perhaps how they might fix that problem or, you know, or so I'm thinking in healthcare context, for example, um, I, I like the idea of really sort of bringing the the people with the lived experience to also think about how they might improve on certain aspects of their experiences that they've had within a healthcare setting um, to help inform health research. So yeah, I really like those ideas as well as um, the last point you're making around, you know, ultimately it's up to the person whether they want to continue sharing a story or not and um, not owned by anyone else, but that individual. Right, you're reminding me of this great project we did um, about eight years ago with the University of Massachusetts. It was a a pretty large scale project funded by the Ford Foundation that was looking at stories by uh, pregnant and parenting young women, mostly teens. And um, one one of the papers that came out of that was this piece on this concept of strategic authenticity. Um, and really kind of digging down into this idea of what it means to self-represent and looking at the decisions that the young women made in terms of, you know, how they framed their own stories and experiences. It was a really great, um, a really great um, term, I think, this idea of strategic authenticity that kind of disrupts this notion that somehow, oh, you know, ultimately there's this deeply true, authentic Um, story and experience that we have when actually how do we even know when our own stories are true and authentic you know so we're always making decisions about how we um, represent ourselves and and remember things so I liked that concept. So we've been we've been talking a lot about sort of process and I'm I'm interested in maybe exploring a little bit of sort of impact or or outcomes of of, of storytelling so do you have any uh, good examples of how using a digital storytelling approach has impacted policy or healthcare practice or? (laughs) That's always the big question. You know, it's interesting. We've done so many projects in collaboration with health and public health researchers and almost always people default to wanting to research the impact of the process on storytellers. And I think it just points to the difficulty 
of researching the impact of viewing stories on viewers, decision makers, et cetera, et cetera, because it's just, you know, that kind of, um, you know, people that do media studies know that that type of viewer response research is just notoriously difficult. Um, nonetheless, I think, you know, when we're talking about, uh, so, so in terms of impact, first of all, you know, I, I think it's important just to, um, a little bit challenge this notion that the only impact worth having is if a story goes viral or something like that. You know, so we have this whole context of um, social media and online activity that assumes the more views, shares, whatever, the better. When um, that's not actually a, a very good measure of much of anything other than the fact that lots of people have watched something, you know, so when we're working with specific um, health projects that have strategic advocacy goals, we try to narrow down the, the, you know, the, the, the audience to who is it who really needs to see this story. So for instance, um, we have a pretty long-term project with the Hepatitis B Foundation. We've done about six or seven workshops through this Just B project. And so, um, you know, so their, their, their policy goals are pretty traditional. And yet, um, I think they're really important, which is they want to get the stories of real people um, and the impacts that Hep B has on them in front of um, policymakers and decision makers who, who have the ability to make decisions about funding allocations for research towards a cure. Um, and so, you know, so in that sense, they've been really successful with integrating stories into the, the um, different policy events that they do in DC every year. And they've been really successful also in positioning the stories, especially um, across different um, ethnic media platforms that are tailored specifically um, in languages other than English. So um, channels and platforms that are, that are, because we've done so many stories in languages other than English, um, that's been really successful too. But I think, um, you know, I, I would put the question back to researchers to, um, you know, to get, to really get creative about what specific impacts you're hoping stories will be able to contribute to and kind of, um, um, figure out how to how to research that. One of the things that I've seen is that, you know, sometimes people have this people in the in the public health or the health world have this very romanticized notion of, you know, oh well, if we just um, help these people tell these stories, then somehow, you know, some miraculous changes are going to occur. And it's mm -hmm. sort of, I think it's important to remind people that you know the effectiveness of your advocacy strategy is only going to be. Um, as good as the strategy is. Like the stories are not the strategy. They have to be woven into an actual strategy, if that makes sense. If we were to ask you, thinking about the audience, like why are stories important to, um, to healthcare or, or in health research? Like why should we um, be looking at stories or collecting stories or sharing stories in the context of healthcare and health research? Sure. I mean, I think um, in the context of uh, public health or healthcare, there's a great uh, tradition of work with narrative medicine. I don't know if you're familiar with that work at Columbia University. But just this idea that um, is that um, that people and patients are so much more than these, you know, sort of, 
uh, one dimensional patients and that um, looking, of course, at data and um, and more quantitative kinds of research is important, but that unless we can actually hear from individual people about how they experience a particular health issue, we won't be as effective in, um, in being able to provide quality care. Um, another great example is that classic um, book that came out years ago, um, If the Spirit Catches You, You Fall Down, which was about, um, which was about, uh, about uh, Hmong immigrants in the Central Valley in California, and really um, dug into the, you know, the, 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 the assumptions that healthcare providers were making about members of this community, and then really kind of inverted that and looked at looked specifically at the beliefs and the um, and the the you know the cultural practices that that um, that they that the community had brought with them, and it was it was just this incredible disconnect between um, the 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 community members and the health providers um, culturally and in, in every way you could think of. And I think that um, stories and storytelling ha have a way of breaking some of that down because they, they, you know, they, so they so much focus on um, particular anecdotal individual experience when, when they're well told. Yeah. And it just brings up some, a thought, um, you know, we often ask, uh, patients, so people with lived experience in healthcare, to share their stories. But um, and and so you know, I'm just putting this out there because I also am aware that um, we have you know a healthcare system that doesn't support healthcare professionals in sharing their own stories and experiences. And and so this just hearing you talk has brought up that thought of like what what's the importance to even just to kind of equalize those relationships a little bit and understand each other I mean we are all humans ultimately at the end of the day and um, you know is it important to also to create a space for healthcare professionals as well as as sort of you know people living with various chronic um, diseases or, or whatever health conditions to be able to share their stories um, I'm so glad you said that, and I, I couldn't agree more. That you know, you've just kind of pointed to the the foundation of our our whole approach to to training facilitators in digital storytelling, which absolutely requires that um, you know, as a, a foundational um, piece of that, people need to learn how to tell their own story and actually participate in digital storytelling. And um, it's, it's amazing how often we get inquiries from people who say, oh, I wanna be trained to do this um, without even thinking about, um, you know, is it really appropriate to train to do something that you haven't, your, you haven't yourself been willing to actually do? Um, but more importantly, just to that point about the, you know, the lack of safe, accessible spaces for providers themselves to share stories, um, that's been kind of the 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 foundation of our our work with the nurse story project that has been working for years to support nurses and nursing professionals from um, all different kinds of um, backgrounds in sharing stories. And it's a chance for uh, you know reflective practice for people to really 
um, to, to share and explore why, why it is they, they went into nursing to share their experiences in nursing. And I have to say, you know, during this time of pandemic, it's, it's just been, um, so powerful, the sessions that we've done, you know, we have, we haven't been doing full online digital storytelling workshops with that group. Although we have been doing lots of that since we don't really have a choice. Um, to do anything in person, but we've done so many story circle and story writing and sharing sessions with nurses. And um, we would love to be able to expand that out to other um, healthcare providers. But I think, you know, it's a bit of a, a <clears throat> it's a bit of a delicate situation knowing how overwhelmed and overtaxed people are too. You know, I'm not sure that the, that the timing is, is, um, is right for some groups, especially, of course, here in the US where um, the system is on the verge of becoming totally overwhelmed. But yeah, sorry, to make, to make a, a long story short, I, I completely agree. And, and I think that process of um, health providers and health researchers of, of sharing their own stories is really, really valuable. What advice do you have for others? Well, just building on what we were just talking about, I would say the key piece of advice is to urge people to explore their own stories and get comfortable with doing so. And to, to urge people to play around with what it feels like to share something pretty personal and make yourself vulnerable. You know, I had a comment the other day in one of my COVID. So I've been doing these almost weekly COVID storytelling webinars since the beginning of the pandemic. And I had this I've developed kind of a friendship with this woman in Norway and um, and almost every time at the beginning of the session, I read a poem and I cry because I'm so grateful to have the companionship and I'm so grateful to see people's faces without the masks. And she made this comment. She said, you know, I, I feel like the the most um, the most successful marker of a good facilitator is the willing to just be vulnerable and be real, you know. So the extent to which researchers themselves who are interested in working with storytelling can can develop those skills, um, and so many of them, um, so many people already have them, of course, or, or or they wouldn't be in the health healthcare profession. Um, but I think that that just helps um, immeasurably in terms of being able to really create safe safe environments where people can sort of let down their, their guard and feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, thank you. And Paul, do you have any final questions um, for Amy? And perhaps Amy might have some final thoughts that you would like to um, share with the audience before we um, wrap up. But Paul, did you have a, any other questions? Yeah, no, I, I, I was actually just gonna, gonna mostly ask you if you had like one takeaway message for people listening today. Only one. What, what would you? Uh, what would you say? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> well, gosh, you know, I I don't want to get too long winded about it, but um, earlier in my digital storytelling years, I I was much more focused on. Um, impacts and outcomes and um, applications for research and this and that. And I have to say, honestly, that that more recently in the past five years, having been working a lot more with performing artists and visual artists, I feel like at the end of the day, digital storytelling is about making art and making art is about healing. 
um, however, however you slice it and look at it. So um, if um, healthcare providers and people working in healthcare can have that kind of value around um, storytelling as an art form, then I think that's that's fantastic. So not looking at not necessarily looking at stories as a, a way to sort of extract data or share important uh, public health messages, but really just looking at it as a as an art form. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Pep Talks, the patient engagement podcast, brought to you by the Alberta Strategy for Patient-Oriented Research, Patient Engagement Platform. Special thanks to Sandra Zielinski and Sadia Ahmed for their co-production. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you found it, and we hope you'll join us again for more interesting discussions about patient engagement in health research and healthcare. care.